you will never, I think, persuade any state to accept that other people's opinions about what it ought to do are more compelling than its own electorate's view. And that's particularly true of democracies. You are listening to The Sovereigns, a podcast based at the University of Cambridge, where we ask ourselves, should we reimagine the state? My name is Tanita. I am Christina. And I am Aditi. And we will be your hosts for this season of the podcast. Welcome to the Sovereigns. on the sovereigns. We talked with Norman Finkelstein about his recent book on Gaza and more generally about the situation in Palestine. There is an interesting point he made about how the language of law may be used to fulfill political purposes and how it becomes problematic when it obscures the truth. The problem comes when the legal interpretation sets in. So you get a set of facts. This happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. And then the lawyers step in. And the lawyers have to interpret the facts. Given this fact set, would you say it was a violation of international law? Was it a war crime? Was it a crime against humanity? If it was a war crime, was it a disproportionate attack? Was it an indiscriminate attack? Was it the targeting of civilians? That's the job of the lawyers. And with all due respect to the three of you, who I assume are law students here, uh, when the lawyers come in, the truth goes out. Uh, And then they start interpreting the facts in a politically, let's just say, very cautious way. This particular remark made us think about the legal interpretation Norman mentions and also about the specific character of international law and its relationship to politics. So welcome to the Sovereigns, uh, Professor David, David Feldman. Thank you. Um, David Feldman is a fellow at Downing College, Cambridge University and also a Ruse Ball uh, professor of English law. Am I Pronouncing yes. that correctly? Well, I think it's Rouseball, Rouseball. it doesn't really matter. Okay. <laughs> I've never, never met anyone who really knew, so... <laughs> Above all, he's our lecturer in the Birth, Development and Afterlife of State, which is by far my favourite course. Absolutely my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> um, Flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> um, and we're so pleased to have you with us uh, in this episode. So I think we should just go ahead with our questions. Um, so, first of all, as we are law students, um, especially most of us majoring in international law, we know that international law is not independent from many disciplines, including, of course, politics. 
Now, when we started this podcast as well, we always thought that international itself is the product of the sovereigns, which just goes to say how important international law is uh, in governing the relationship between states and you know managing the potential conflict and politics among them. But from what we had with Finkelstein, his account was that there seemed to be multiple political barriers that we have to go through before the law can be objectively scrutinized and also even utilized, if at all. And so, on the one hand, states are professing their legal compliance, but on the other hand, there seems to be a lot of things going on uh, politically. And so it seems like the law is serving the politics, there's a subordination of law. What would you say about this concern? I think I think one can answer that at a number of different levels. Um, at a fairly abstract level, one could say that politics and law are inextricably linked because um, at its most basic, the, uh, the law is an expression of sovereign power. Um, and international law is a little bit different, I think. Um, and uh, I don't particularly want to get involved in that just at the moment. We can come back to that okay. later. Yeah. But but if you just think about any system of, of law uh, it, w- with, within um, a political uh, entity like a state, um, one and probably the, the, the most common way of making law is through some form of legislation, which is a political process, intrinsically political. So inevitably, at that level, that type of law is going to be bound up with politics. There may be all sorts of problems which emerge about whether you can, first of all, pass a law of a particular kind, given the political situation in the legislature that's considering it. Secondly, when you, if you have the law passed, there's a problem about how it's implemented. You can't just assume that passing a law produces a result. And a lot of politicians I've come across have a slightly uh, naive mm. belief that um, if you have a problem, all you have to do is make a law about it, mm. and then it all somehow sorts itself out. That's not true at all. So at the level, the more concrete level of taking law, a law, and implementing it on the ground, you have uh, to consider also the institutional ethics and um, aims of particular groups and, and official bodies um, which have the job of maintaining or implementing the legal structure which is put in place. Um, and it's not a mechanical process. You can't say, once you have a law, the law is going to be applied in the same way every time it operates and it's going to be done mechanically. Um, you get discretion in the system. And it's a good thing that you do have discretion in the system very often, because otherwise law would become utterly antisocial. Mm. You, know, you have to, to, to moderate or, or, or mediate the way in which law 
operates through the judgment and discretion of intermediate bodies like police, courts, regulators, um, and even in many cases, um, civil society organisations, which you start with the law, but then it, you know, that may not actually be the best way of getting to the result that you want. You, if you have an objective, you have to achieve your objective without, if possible, breaching the law. But the objective is more important on the ground, very often, than the law. So it, it, it's not just politics. It's also a matter of recognising that there are goals and values which go beyond law. Now, one of the problems, uh, therefore, is knowing what you mean by law. Is it law in the legislation or in a common law system, law as it can be deduced from utterances of judges deciding individual cases, or is it something different? Does it also apply in the international arena? Well, thank you for bringing us back to the international arena. <laughs> I have great difficulty with international law because I don't, I've never been entirely comfortable with, law, with international law as a type of law. But I think the problem very often is that people forget that international law in that respect is exactly like domestic law. You can have laws, but what really matters isn't always what the laws say in terms of imposing obligations. What matters is how far one can use social, political, administrative managerial authority to persuade different institutions to come into line with or to, to further mm. the goals of international law. If you think of law and international law in particular as having goals rather than simply laying down rules, then you can't expect to change the world simply by saying this is a law. It's got, there's got to be a process of adaptation and, uh, and, and that's a progressive matter. But when we say that, uh, you know, understandably international law is a tool to further, uh, you know, more normalcy in international relations, but what it looks like, particularly in the field of international law, is that it is often used to shroud uh, political objectives and attain, you know, like you said, it's interdisciplinary. You need to take into consideration the administrative part of it, the social part of it, but exclusively in terms of uh, international law and relations, even including the Israel-Palestine issue, we often see that the arguments put forth by the parties to the conflict or even third parties are often legal in nature, but they shroud a political objective. And when these kind of issues... Uh, come up, do you think it sort of undermines the status of what you call law or sort of obfuscates uh, its standing or sacrosanct position? Yes, but I think that that, that perhaps misrepresents law. Law isn't sacrosanct. Law is part of society. Law is a set of 
of working institutions. One of the problems with international law is that the extent to which it's really part of any society, except in the very abstract and strange idea of the, quote, international community, unquote, is very questionable. Mm. Um, One of the difficulties with international law is international lawyers, I think. And international Mm. lawyers have tended in the past to think of... um, the state as a um, a black box. It's, it's really not... You don't worry about what goes on within the state. You just say international law requires the state to act in certain ways and we don't care about the political processes within the state, which may... Or indeed, the social processes which might make it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a particular state in a particular place at a particular time to do that. Um, And that's because while states all necessarily claim to be committed to the international rule of law, whatever that means, inevitably, for it to work... International, for international law to work, it has to be done through the states. It has to be done through states' political, legislative, judicial, managerial, regulatory, executive institutions. Now, I mean, we can think of all sorts of examples, but let's suppose that we um, had a, a rule of international law which required... Um, refugees to be rehoused on the moon. Now, there are certain obvious difficulties with with, with that. And, and um, so, okay, well, the first step is can we accommodate these refugees somewhere? And then, okay, over time, perhaps it's possible to rehouse them on the moon. <laughs> But you've got to work towards that and you, you can't produce the results simply by saying there is a rule of law that requires X and Y. Mm. Now, I, mean, I had some experience of this in Bosnia because the, one of the problems there was that the international community tried in various respects to impose um, obligations through things like UN Security Council resolutions, the Dayton Agreement, the work of the um, uh, High Representative and and, um, other international institutions try to impose obligations on the state to function in particular ways. If you've got a society in which there are still very deep divisions it may actually be impossible to put in place a friendly, peaceful, power-sharing agreement with, with political processes that are capable of, of, of developing um, state institutions and legal uh, compliance in um, a, a friendly and predictable way. So what you're really doing as a, as a member of an institution in the country is... You, you, you see international requirements as a sort of 
roadmap, a guide rather than imposing immediate obligations, and you try to create a situation over time where people are more, you know, locals are, are, are more willing to adopt a an approach to whatever the problems are, which is more cooperative than not. But that takes a very long time, particularly if each of the different groups in that society, or in, in Bosnia, the, each of the constituent peoples sees itself, or their leaders see themselves, as having a particular set of interests which are incompatible with the goals and interests of the other constituent peoples. If there's a lack of trust there and a lack of common ground and a lack of of um, what's the word? Uh, 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 consensus, uh, maybe? No. <laughs> well, no. Consensus is too much to hope for. Mm. Right? Even within the consti- each constituent people, consensus is difficult to achieve. Mm. But between them, it's uh, you're not going to get much consensus. You can't even there get any consensus about the desirability of the existence of the state. So uh, how are you going to go beyond? So what you have to do is try to develop trust and develop a a, a reduction in the level of of anger, Mm. and particularly where there's a background of systematic violence mm. and death and displacement. Same in Northern Ireland, so mm. in a slightly different way. Mm. But it takes generations. When you spoke about Bosnia, you spoke about internal situations mm. where the constituent nations disagree and uh, like you said there's a lack of will to to cooperate and uh, if we once again bring it to, to the international level with the Palestinian situation we see that there's lack of will at the international level so what is the role of international law in this situation should is it is it efficient tool actually uh, in a situation where the actors seem to pursue political interests and mm. uh, we have these obligations which even to even to actually comply with these obligations in this limited sense how you spoke about law as obligations mm. even even this seems difficult in in this particular international setting mm. well if you think about uh, about israel and palestine you have you have differences of aim and differences of belief which go beyond the political. Mm. What you're talking about there, to some extent in Bosnia as well, but let's put that on one side, but what you're talking about there is an existential crisis because for both sides they see the claims and aspirations of the other as existentially threatening themselves. And you have to see things in that light. You can have UN Security Council resolutions till, you know, till the cows come home, but 
if you're not in a position to enforce them by force of arms, and actually the UN and other international institutions are really extremely weak. They rely on member states being willing to put their own troops at risk to intervene, whether it's peacekeeping in Bosnia or wherever, or um, overseeing uh, development of a, of a new state in Kosovo or wherever it is, you actually have to be able to get states to take their own resources, their own people, and put them in there to make it feasible. If there's no will to do that, then all the international law does, if you think of UN Security Council Chapter 7 resolutions as being law, Mm. or anyway, instruments that give rise to legal obligations, is that the legal obligations can only form just part of the backdrop against which the intractable differences play out. Why did did the war in Bosnia eventually finish as required by, among other things, UN Security Council resolutions? It was because NATO was prepared to bomb the Serbs to the negotiating table. Now, that's that happened, that worked, same to some extent with Kosovo. But if you're not prepared to do that or not capable of doing that, then you've got to rely on consent. And that means you have to build consent. You can't build consent by name-calling, being offensive. You have to be polite. You have to recognise that both sides have what in their respective views are entirely legitimate Mm -hmm. existences and interests and that they need or feel the need to be able to take action to protect their existence and their interests. We can disagree about what action is appropriate Mm -hmm. or sensible or desirable Mm-hmm. But I mean, Would I can you? understand that we we can be and have to be polite if it's if you know between conflicting political interests. But as you said, this is an existential mm. issue. This which is beyond political is that how is it that people can argue of its own in existence? I think going ahead with that, because particularly in the con- in this particular situation where Israel and Palestinian people are. It, the occupation or the conflict is about 40 plus year old mm-hmm. and realistically speaking negotiations and consensus building sort of can happen or bringing two conflicting parties to a common table with politeness mm-hmm. with you know diplomacy can happen to a certain extent but what happens is that like you said if it's an existential threat uh rationality often takes over uh uh, by, you know, means that are not always appropriate. Mm-hmm. Especially in this situation, why it's different from, say, something like Kosovo or uh, the situation in uh, Serbia, for example, was because there have been uh, very few Security Council resolutions which would enforce 
or prohibit Israel from taking certain actions. Mm-hmm. In such complicated situations, other than say purely political or legal mechanisms, are there uh, are there solutions that could be a bit of both? And it's it's a long standing process. How and mm-hmm. how do we see an end to it? Yeah, maybe you can compare it to what happened in Bosnia. Well, I, th- I, I if you go back to 1948, and this is the 70th anniversary of the of the foundation of the State of Israel, which succeeded the British mandate under the UN Security Council for, 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 for this time. It was effectively a vote of the UN General Assembly that gave the state, in international terms, its legitimacy, followed by the establishment of the mechanisms of the state and then recognition of the state by other states in the usual sort of rather messy international law way. From the moment of the declaration of the state, it was attacked by other states. It's been a continuous state of war for 70 years, a war, war, a continuous war of self-defense. And the battle has been, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert in this, the battle has been at each attack aimed at wiping out the states, there's been a battle to establish what might be secure borders. And, and that's very, very difficult in, in, in a small state given the, the, the geography and the topography. Um, and given that it's encircled by hostile states, the existential threat to the state is very, very considerable. It's a small state surrounded by states which on multiple occasions over the last 70 years have tried by force of arms to wipe it out. Now that colours politics, it colours their sense of their own uh, needs and the, the, yeah, its essentials. And because of that, they're naturally suspicious of people who are, many of them, self-declared opponents of the existence of the State of Israel. And that then, of course, colours their attitude towards Palestinians claiming a separate independent state. It colours the political attitude and military attitude to the extent to which they can safely give up military control over occupied territories. And remember, Israel has handed back very significant parts of the occupied territories and, and then finds itself once again under attack from those areas. So it's it's not a situation in which it's going to be easy on either side to build up enough trust in the short term to produce a, what you might think of as a, a, as a civilized political solution. You need, you, you, I think, in, in this sort of situation, first of all, you need 
inspirational leaders who are prepared to take risks. And they'll be prepared to take risks if and only if they find on the other side inspirational leaders who are similarly inclined. Because you have to remember that if, if the leaders on either side are going to surrender enough to make agreement possible, they're in serious danger of losing their own political support. Mm. Right? Because you know, will, will, will the Palestinians be prepared <laughs> to accept the leadership of people who come and say, we actually think it's in our best interests to talk to the Israelis rather than to fight or to sort of cut off communications? Mm. And will people in Israel, leaders in Israel, be able to maintain their parliamentary majorities if they do the same the other way? So it, it, it's where politics meets inspirational leadership. And you need both. You need, you need leaders who are prepared to take risks, not just risks with their own parliamentary or political majorities, but risks with the existence of their states or, or proto-states, whatever you want to call them, Palestine. And that's not easy. And then when you've had a state of armed enmity, for 70 years, my rule of thumb, I don't know whether it's fair or not, but my estimate would be that it takes twice as long to produce anything approaching normality as the period during which there's been a state of armed aggression. So, you know, if we got two inspirational leaders, one on each side, who could bring their peoples along with them and have a negotiated settlement. And of course, the, that was tried by the Egyptians yeah. and ended up with assassination. So it's, it's a high-risk strategy, mm-hmm. even if you have the people who are prepared to try to do it. Will they still be there for long enough to make it work? Um, and then we need about 140 years of keeping a lid on it. <laughs> yes. right. But Professor Feldman, isn't it a, isn't it a failure of the international community to basically being unable, at least in certain situations, to enforce the compliance with human rights? Do we have to wait for for charismatic political leaders to to ensure that? that uh, human rights are not violated? Well, you, you, you have to rely, if you're talking about it at a sort of fairly granular, concrete level, you have to have local institutions in place to do that. You have to have systems for policing and public management and courts that can do that. If we now speak again about the people in the particular area, in the particular state, um, Norman Finkelstein argued that uh, what Gaza needs at the moment is to win the public opinion. We think he understands public opinion as uh, reports of uh, NGOs, uh, UN resolutions, 
even the public support. So, so something basically some kind of external public opinion. And there's, there's always, there's also the, 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 the suffering of, of the Gazan people, of the Palestinian people, uh, which is important in itself. So we would like to ask you how this, uh, how these two types of public opinions come into display in this, again, international arena, which we are now mm-hmm. talking about. And, uh, we see that it's really a mix of, uh, law and politics and social causes. Maybe particularly like to courts, like how do courts take these facts or opinions into account in their, um, consideration and assessments? Yeah. Um, yes, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what is meant by public opinion here. But if, if as you say, it means something happening at an extra state level, then you will never, I think, persuade any state to accept that other people's opinions about what it ought to do are more compelling than its own electorate's view. And that's particularly true of democracies. I think if if you have uh, an autocracy, then you could sometimes achieve something by bringing pressure to bear on the autocrat. And although that doesn't seem to have worked very well in Syria, but yeah, that's probably because you know, public opinion, or in ways, the division of states is such that there was no consistent pressure on Hitler. But if you're in a democracy, and Israel, whatever else it is, is it seems to me a democracy, you always have to think about the electorate. What is the electorate going to say? What are my members of the Knesset going to say? Because the Prime Minister only has authority to do that which he or she can push through or persuade through the Knesset. That's one of the unfortunate things about parliamentary democracy. So, so I think, I, I think as a matter of practical politics, if you're dealing with democracy, then things that happen in NGOs and that sort of thing are at best going to be something which can help to give added weight to particular political groups within the state. But the actual solution has to be worked out for the state's own democratic institutions. And the same may be true of the Palestinian Authority as well. I, I don't know enough about it to, to be able to say, but you know, if a state regards itself as democratic, which can mean many things, but uh, at least that the people should have ultimately some voice in the process of making important decisions, then you're always, as a leader of a state, going to be looking over your shoulder at the next election or the next assassin's bullet in some places. Drawing back uh, 
to a more theoretical point from this what you essentially said was like uh, the parliamentarians have to take into consideration the interests of the state and the opinions of their people so you have internal sovereignty of the state on one hand and what is popularly understood as external sovereignty or their obligations uh, their uh, sort of relative uh, interactions with other states so in this understanding how does the concept of sovereignty in itself uh, play a part in understanding the state because from what it looks like internal sovereignty and decisions clearly triumph over uh, their obligations externally so yes. how does how 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 do we see sovereignty as a concept uh, in this situation i find it a very difficult term you can talk about um the, the sovereignty of the state you can talk about legislative sovereignty and judicial mm-hmm. sovereignty within the state but I've, i i i find it very hard to understand what's meant by sovereignty outside the state and why should a state which has a democratic system of governance regard itself as bound to behave in a particular way regardless of its own interests well only it'll only do that it'll only regard itself as bound if it feels that it's the right thing to do now whether it regards it as the right thing to do will depend at least in part not completely but in part on how the international system treats the state because one of the implications of of saying as as i suggested that um international law can normally operate only through states is that the sources of international law have if they want their law to be at all effective they have to remember the need to maintain the loyalty of the states on which they rely for their rule principles judgments to have effect you can see that all over the place you can see that in the european court of human rights you know the uk is generally speaking quite a respectful state relative to many others when it comes to loyalty to international law of course it's loyal to its view of international law but then all states are loyal to their view of international law yeah, and several years ago i edited a volume called english public law and there's a companion volume called english private law and the editors debated long and hard about whether we should have a third volume called english international law <laughs> because quite apart from you know, private international law every state has its own view of what it's required to do under public international law and so that's beside what the point is that our loyalty to let's say the european court of human rights and its jurisdiction depends on the european court of human rights not making judgments which are stupid or which are 
widely regarded within the state as being stupid. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about the political furore over prisoners' voting rights in the UK or in Russia, or the um, judgment in Sejic and Finsey in relation to Bosnia, who's saying that the um, consociational arrangements in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina violate the um, non-discrimination provisions of the European Convention. Um, if there is simply no realistic chance, politically or constitutionally, that this judgment can be given effect, then what's the point making it? What's the point in insisting that this is what international law requires? It can't be because the European Court of Human Rights actually expects that this will be given effect. Can't be. I mean, because they'd have to be stupid to think that, and the judges aren't stupid. So what are they doing? What are, what are other sources of international law doing? Well, to some extent, I think it's, it's a rhetorical and aspirational device. You know, the judgment as laying down a long-term goal, a set of long-term values rather than a, 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 an enforceable judgment or an enforceable rule. A hope and that's not a question of sovereignty, as I understand it, because sovereignty, I have a simple-minded view of sovereignty, but it, it, sovereignty involves having a body or an institution with the ability to say, this is what's going to happen. And then, if push comes to shove, say, eight times out of ten, making it happen. International law is different. That's, that's not really what international law is. So sovereignty in international law is a mystery to me. So that's exactly what we are trying to unravel in the limited yeah. time that we have in Cambridge. Yeah. That was, <laughs> yes. So it's, but the real, I think the key to understanding it or understanding why it isn't <laughs> is remembering that international law isn't self-enforcing. It relies exactly. on states. Yeah. And so it always has to work through states, which are first of all sovereign, because even under international law, sovereignty and statehood are seen as two sides of the same coin. So you, you start off by recognizing state sovereignty. When you've done that, there's no room for sovereignty of international law. And then within the states, international law will be given effect only if it's politically and constitutionally feasible. Otherwise, the international institutions have to recognise that what they're really doing is saying, please, everybody, we'd really like it very much if you were able to do such and such. Of course, if you can't, that's, that's fine too. But <laughs> do you think we would just possibly move things along a little bit in that direction? Mm -hmm.